Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 27 on August 25th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Cooksville, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking about cedar shingles and why we decided to use them at the Institute. We also have our regular weekly news roundup and Institute updates. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. Like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts. So this week we're going to be talking about the cedar shingles we're installing on the Institute, which is part of the reason that we haven't been having really regular podcasts. It's been taking up a lot of our time. So I thought I'd go out on the roof with my recording equipment and talk a little bit about that. So please enjoy. Uh, If you're planning on doing a cedar roof, hopefully there's some useful information there for you and for the rest of you, maybe you'll look at cedar roofs a little differently next time you see one. This is a beautiful early Wisconsin morning and I'm continuing on the project that I've been working on for the past two months, which is one of the reasons we haven't had a podcast. Um, I am re-roofing our house. Um, Our house, as some of you may know, was built in the 1850s and had a cedar roof that, well, cedar roofs go, uh, it's a wooden roof so it only has a finite lifespan just like any other type of roof. An asphalt roof might have 20 years, a properly installed wood roof will have 30 to 40 years of life. Um, Metal roofs, if properly installed, could last considerably longer. The unfortunate thing with our roof is it was not installed correctly and so um, I'm having to take it out a little earlier than one would expect. As you can hear there's a lot of rustling because I am actually doing the work right now as I'm recording this so I'm moving a, a ladder so I can get up onto the roof. One of the problems with a cedar roof, well it's not really a problem, it's just a, a design feature that has to be put in place is sufficient ventilation. Um, wood is obviously a natural product and uh, therefore it can rot. Anyone who's taken an archaeology class with me knows that rot usually comes from microorganisms and they like wet environments but not too wet, oxygen-rich environments. If one were to put down tar paper and then simply nail or screw shingles right onto the surface there is going to be a lot of contact between the wood and the underlayment. This causes a a place for moisture to live and develop. This is a problem if you want your (laughs) roof not to rot. Well, that's what was done here. So the answer, there's actually two answers right now that are currently accepted by the industry. Answer number one is uh, a new product called a cedar breather. And what a cedar breather is, is basically a a plastic mesh that has about a half inch thickness um, and then is spread out in sheets, kind of like tar paper. So three feet wide and 200 feet long. And this is spread over the roof and tacked into place. And then the shingles are nailed over it. And what this does is allows water to wick away from underneath the shingles and to dissipate. Right now you're hearing the tarp that I have on the roof because you can't just leave your roof exposed if you are working on it. Otherwise you might get considerable amount of water in your house, which is not generally preferable. At any rate, This cedar breather stuff is plastic, which is a petroleum product, number one, so I'm not a huge fan of that. 
And number two, it's only been around for 15 or 20 years, which means there hasn't been a roof that was installed and then lived its entire life with a cedar breather and the results could then be examined. It hasn't been around long enough for an entire life of a roof. So we don't know that it will last 30 years and give the same performance as the traditional method, which I'll be explaining in a minute. Uh, furthermore, when I went on to some online roofing forums, I saw contractors talking about ripping out old cedar roofs that rotted. One of the things mentioned, although it was anecdotal, was that uh, this contractor says that he had ripped out a lot of rotten cedar roofs and they had had that cedar breather. And he had not ripped out many rotted roofs that had the traditional installation method, which is called skip sheeting. Sheeting is the flat part of the roof underneath the shingles. And skip sheeting is, as the name implies, spaced sheeting. So it skips and provides ventilation, really, for the cedar by having a flat wooden surface with horizontal bands removed, and then air can flow through these horizontal bands. So what this looks like in real life is basically um, I get down to the deck of my roof, so down to the wooden sheathing, uh, which is usually plywood or something similar to plywood. And as long as this is still in good shape, it gets left. If it's not in good shape, I have to replace it, which has happened in a few places where the shingles have worn away and water has gotten through and damaged the, actually the, the underlayment of the roof. At any rate, first I put a layer of vertical up and down two by fours. So these are the standard wooden boards that you find at the hardware store, two inches by four inches nominally, so they're a little smaller than that. These go up and down on top of the rafters, and the rafters are the larger boards that go under the sheathing to actually support the structure of the roof. So I nail these into place every two feet or 16 inches, depending on how wide the rafters are spaced. And then on top of that, horizontally or across from left to right, I put one by four. So these are half the thickness of a two by four. These get laid down and I leave an inch and a half gap between every one of them. This uh, allows air to flow next to the two by fours and next to the one by fours. And then when I nail the shingles on top of them, this causes airflow to go through these gaps. I leave a little bit of gap at the edge or the eaves so that when wind blows from one direction, it'll help push air all the way through and help dry off the underside of these shingles. And right now you can hear the cracking or muffled cracking as I remove the layer of shingles that's on there right now. And these are wet. We haven't had rain in a couple of days and these things are really wet, which tells you that they're not getting the drainage that they need. And I already knew this because of the moss that was growing on them. And this is on the north side in the shade. So it has the less, least chance of any part of the roof to get dried off. Um, it's also a very flat part. The greater the angle on your roof, or the steeper the pitch, as it's called, the better your cedar shingles are gonna last because the water sits on them for a lot less time as it runs right off. And water, or at least prolonged water exposure, is the enemy of cedar shingles. So you might be hearing a rhythmic chunking noise. That is me sliding a flat nose shovel underneath a layer of shingles and then pushing down to lever it up. And this is by far the, the easiest method I've found so far. They do make specialized roofing shingle removing tools that basically do the same thing. However, that's $50. And if I replace my roof every, I don't know, 30 years, probably not worth the investment for the, I don't know, few minutes that it may save and it's slightly more 
efficient design than my shovel. A pitchfork or a spade fork might work just as well as a shovel. Here's one of the big differences with cedar shingles as opposed to say asphalt, and this is important I think. That's uh, me tossing shingles into the back of my, my truck. Well, and then instead of taking them to the dump, which is usually what you have to do with the asphalt shingles, or you have one of those construction dumpsters delivered and then you fill it up with asphalt shingles and where do they go? They go and sit in a landfill. I'm taking these cedar shingles because they are untreated as cedar is naturally weather resistant. And I found the previous label from when they installed these and I know that they are untreated cedar shingles, they're gonna go back into a giant compost pile in the backside of my yard. After a year or two, and I'll turn them occasionally, it will be pretty great mulch. And now out of an abundance of caution, I'm not going to use them on edible plants, but it'll be perfectly acceptable to mulch my trees and bushes and other areas, walkways, and other things that I don't eat with this mulch. So I'm gonna get about 10 truckloads of mulch out of this instead of sending an equivalent amount of asphalt shingles to the dumpster. So this is something I think about when we made the decision to put in wooden shingles, again, rather than putting in asphalt shingles like we potentially could have done. Other than cedar shingles, the only really ecologically responsible thing to do is put in a metal roof, some other alternative natural material. And the reason for that is, well, there's many reasons for that. The production of anything with asphalt is taking fossil fuels. And obviously, the way that my wooden shingles are produced today uses fossil fuels and the, the chainsaws and the running the lumber mill and transporting them here. So, you know, I, I absolutely acknowledge that there was fossil fuels used in them. However, they are not made of fossil fuels. They are, in theory, a renewable resource. And afterwards, they're not gonna pollute the environment. They're going to become part of the environment. So these are all, you know, there's no silver bullet. No perfect thing. Like I was saying, you could do a metal roof. We decided not to because of the historical nature of our house. So we are caving a bit to extreme environmental and ecological considerations to preserve the historical nature of our house, which I think is also important. And we could, you know, debate the merits of whether or not that's that's a correct decision or not, it comes down to personal choice, I suppose. Because we could have done a metal roof, like I was alluding to earlier. If it's a new construction, and when we build the eventual institute farther back in the grounds, it will very likely have a metal roof. The nice thing about a metal roof is you can collect water off of it and not have to worry about all the runoff from asphalt shingles that you would otherwise. You shouldn't collect water off of asphalt shingles and use it for vegetables. There are chemicals in there that leach into the water and it's not considered safe. I accidentally did this not knowing, thinking I was being ecologically friendly and saving water by saving water off my roof and using it for our garden. Well, probably actually not the best thing to do if one has asphalt shingles. Fine for trees, fine for lawns, I suppose, if you are gonna have a lawn and listen to, there's a Freakonomics episode a couple weeks ago about lawns that I posted on the blog as worth having a listen to. And it talks about the ins and outs of lawns, and it's highly recommended listening. But if you were to use asphalt shingle roof water on your lawn, better than using municipal potable water supplies for it. It's now the weekend, which means I'm not working. Oh, bye. Partners, you're helping me. Hello. 
And here's where we had technical difficulties. Unfortunately, I lost the recording where I talk about laying the skip sheeting itself, but I think that process has been pretty well described in the previous section. So we'll just keep moving right on to installing the shingles. And now after taking off the old shingles, cleaning off the deck, replacing any of the deck that needs replacing anything that's soft or worn, and then after putting down the two by fours going up and down and the one by four is going from left to right. It's just about time to start with the actual shingling. Um, but before that, we have to lay down tar paper on the bottom. Uh, the, the last 30 inches of the, the lowest 30 inches of the eave gets tar paper because that gets the most pressure from ice and water and all that, so it gets a little extra protection. And then around all the edges, we put in a metal drip edge. This is basically exactly what it sounds. It's an edge so that the water drips off the roof rather than runs down the side of the house. So it's a little bit of a projecting eave. In the valleys, or where two parts of the roof meet together with different angles, we have to put a sheet of flashing, which is just an aluminum or a galvanized metal sheet. And that runs down because of the, I mean, we all know that water is a strong eroding power. And if we just left it with shingles in the valley, they, would, uh, they wouldn't be able to take the pressure. So we have to put metal valleys down. And then once all that's done, you can actually start shingling. And it's not quite, I, I've done shingling and you've probably seen plenty of shingling done with asphalt, but we're doing shingling with the cedar. So that means a little more work. It's not as easy as simply plopping down the shingles and hammering them in. For one thing, asphalt shingles have pre-measured tabs. So you know exactly how deep to set each course. Well, these cedar shingles that you can hear me stacking here in the background, they're just slats of wood. So they have no markings on them to show you how deep. And we're doing a five inch exposure, which is the recommended amount of exposure for the slope of roof we have and the quality of shingles we have. So that means five inches of each shingle is gonna be visible. These shingles are 18 inches long, so really the majority of the shingle sits behind or underneath the shingles above it, and this provides with extra protection in case they happen to warp, crack, or split. What I have here is a board, an eight foot long board with little baskets for nails tacked onto them, and they have holes drilled in them, and through those holes I've tacked short nails. When I'm ready to do a row of shingles, I measure up from the bottom and I mark where this row should be, and then I tack the board down, and that acts kind of like a ledge to hold the shingles. And then I can start placing shingles. And you'll hear the shingles rustling in the background here. The thing to note about these shingles is that we have three-eighths of an inch of gap between these shingles. That means there's just a little space between each one, and that's because these shingles expand and contract because they're a natural product made of wood. Every four inches or so of width will gain an eighth of an inch and lose an eighth of an inch depending on how wet the conditions are. So we have to leave expansion joints basically. On top of that, we need to make sure that the joints don't line up on each course or on each line or row of shingles. So it's kind of like a puzzle because you can put down a shingle and as long as its edge doesn't line up with the edge of one below it, you'd think you're fine, but actually you have to make sure that you are not lining up with any shingles within two courses. I, when I lay down a shingle, I look at the key, which is the space, the gap between the shingles, and make sure that, that key isn't lined up with a key on the row below it, or a key on the row below that. 
So it's three levels of checking and it can be a bit of a puzzle and you can hear I've been shuffling around trying to find one. Finally, I found one that fits in this space and now I found another. And here, I'm, so I'm putting a row of shingles as I speak here. Each row of shingles that's eight feet long, which is how long my board is, takes me about, oh, four or five minutes to place. If I was doing this with asphalt shingles, I could do it in a minute. It would be really fast. On top of that, once I get my eight feet of shingles here lined up and ready to go, then I use short aluminum nails to tack them down onto the sheathing. I'm not using a nail gun because a nail gun doesn't have the feeling that a human hand does when using a hammer. Each one of these shingles has a different consistency because it's a wood product, so some are tougher than others. And if I were to use a nail gun, the pressure would be too high for some and blow right through them, damaging the shingle. And for others that were really dense, it wouldn't be strong enough and the nail wouldn't be driven in all the way. You kind of have to do it by hand, or you're supposed to do it by hand according to the Cedar Shingle Bureau, which adds to the time. Ooh, it is windy today. We had storms move through last night and I had everything tarped, so luckily nothing got wet, but it's definitely a much cooler day than yesterday. Uh, working up on the roof is one of the hotter jobs you can undertake. So when it's hot out, I'm definitely taking a break every hour on the hour, whether I feel like I need it or not, because by the time you feel like you need a break or you need water, it's too late. I know that from working in Mexico for many years and seeing a lot of people get dehydrated, myself included. Take care of yourself or you can't finish the job. All right, so now in that time we've been talking, I've laid out eight feet of shingles and now I'm grabbing my hammer and I go to the little basket of nails and every shingle, no matter how wide it is, because they're variable width, gets two nails, about an inch from each edge, about six and a half inches up. Remember, they're five inch exposures, so the nails are one and a half inches above the exposures. This means that no nails should be exposed to the surface. Any nail you put in is a potential place for moisture or water to get through the roof, so you don't want those visible to the surface. Now the neat thing is, even though I'm only putting in two nails, which doesn't sound like a lot, it's going through two layers below it. Of course, because they're 18 inches long, this is actually going through three layers of shingles as they are kind of stacked over one another. So really, every shingle gets about six nails in it which is part of the reason that these are strong enough to stay on the roof in strong winds, tornadoes, and things like that. They don't, unlike asphalt shingles, which actually kind of melt together and form a solid tar mass on your, on your roof and can be very hard to separate. Uh, these do not do that, which is one benefit that tar roofs have over this. It makes it a little more integral and connected and less likely to leak. However, We've talked about the ecological impact of those asphalt shingles, and so we've chosen not to use them. You can hear the tarp rustling in the background, as we might have a thunderstorm pop up. I couldn't completely remove the tarp because it takes me a little bit of time to get it over the roof. And of course, the part that I've shingled is ready to go. It doesn't matter if it gets wet, but the roof above it is more or less exposed, and a, and a big rainstorm could potentially damage our house. So we have to be a little careful. All right, and I'm almost done nailing in these eight feet of shingles. You'll notice it takes a little bit of time, and that's because I'm hand nailing. It really slows things down. And there we go. So, 
That's eight feet. And now I just repeat that over and over and over all day. Uh, and eventually, the entire deck is covered. Uh, at the ridge, I use more aluminum flashing, bend it over the ridge, uh, the very top, the peak of the roof, and that helps shed water off, another vulnerable point in the roof, um, and then I put a decorative um, layer of shingles across that. So it's a lot of work. It's a way to roof that's been around for a long time, and in theory, one could make the shingles themselves and shingle their entire roof. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to because of uh, legal constraints for where we live in a historical district. We had to use the salt and shingles, so I wasn't allowed to make them myself. But on the other hand, I did make some shingles, and it is quite the time-consuming and difficult process. And that's it. The cedar shingles are installed, and they sit on the roof and weather nicely, going gray gracefully. Let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. We're following a couple different stories. One comes from Treehugger. Uh, it's an essay entitled, Why We Should Be More Materialistic. And usually we think of materialism as uh, a bad thing. Uh, people who are materialistic, who value things over people or health or other things. But really they're redefining the idea of materialism to look for things that are better quality, and perhaps buy a lower quantity of better quality goods to actually enjoy the things you purchase and buy fewer of them, make sure they're uh, of high quality so they last a long time and that in future years when you are still using the same pair of shoes or the same belt or whatever, uh, you will still get enjoyment of it, which is a nice way to reformulate how we think about uh, and interact with the things in our current economy. Another article um, from The Conversation uh, that's worth taking a look at is called Curbing Climate Change, Why It's So Hard to Act in Time, and this runs through the different difficult barriers we have as a global society uh, to act to mitigate the effects of climate change. And a lot of them have to do with the slow, at least from the human perspective, the slow changes that accompany climate change. Um, they're, they're not really on a human life scale or on a day-to-day -day sort of thing that we can see as easily, although the article points out we are starting to get storms and other things that do happen on a time scale that we can comprehend. But it's, yeah, that's uh, certainly an article worth checking out uh, if you ever wonder why it may be difficult for some to get behind uh, positive climate action. I was excited to see my home region crop up on my newsfeed uh, when I saw the article Leech Lake Community Solar Array First in Minnesota to be 100% dedicated to low-income residents. So I was really excited uh, because I'm from near uh, Leech Lake and um, it's exciting that they are putting in a solar array that is specifically dedicated for low-income residents as the title implies. And it's a really interesting idea because um, people who are living at or below the poverty level often do not have the resources to um, transition to these new technologies that are often more expensive. And they, it's difficult to be an early adapter if you're worried about day-to-day -day issues. You can't fault somebody who is having trouble making ends meet with not adopting the newest, latest, and greatest technologies. So this was a really interesting partnership that's covered in this article. I noticed after I read the article that it was actually written by a friend of mine from high school, Anna Carlson, who has a PhD in the sustainability field. So check that out on resilience or clean energy resource teams. A final article I wanted to draw your attention to was called Waste Not Want Not, an old motto for an era of mass production. And this was on The Ecologist, and it is an exhortation to look at our waste stream and how we are wasting a lot of food. And it's not just 
a shame to waste food, but it's if you think about, as I often talk about on this podcast, the energy embodied in, in making food and making it available in our industrial system, when food goes bad, it gives absolutely no benefit to society for all the carbon and all the fossil fuels and all the other resources that have been used to bring that food to your table. This article outlines a new group called Snapped in England uh, and how they're turning discarded food into healthy snacks, often by dehydrating and making like fruit leathers and things like that. So check out that article. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we discussed, send us a news tip and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. Uh, we recently harvested honey. We got about 72 pounds. I may have mentioned that last week. Uh, we also had a swarm take up residence in my new roof. I was able to exclude the swarm because you can't really have bees living underneath your shingles. Uh, and I'll follow up with a blog post detailing how I removed the swarm uh, without killing it. This coming week, I will be in Minnesota attending the annual Bicycling Around Minnesota tour, uh, where we'll be covering hundreds of miles over a few days uh, and making a nice loop uh, this year through northern Minnesota. I'll be conducting interviews with uh, people on the ride, and I'll bring you a podcast about that before too long. I'll also be stopping by One Scythe Revolution in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. This is one of the larger national distributors of uh, European scythes, and so I'm picking up a scythe for myself. And I'm also going to be talking with Botan Anderson, who runs One Scythe Revolution, and of course that's going to come to you on a future podcast. I'm trying to get in touch with a few festivals and other events coming up where I would like to do a podcast and interviews with the promoters and the people attending it, uh, and I hope to have those for future podcasts, so stay tuned. We're also working to get a few workshops together. Uh, hopefully we're going to be having an introduction to permaculture class, and we'll be doing one, I hope, on cordials, tool sharpening, snowshoe making, and a few other things this fall. So please stay tuned, uh, sign up to the listserv, check out our workshop link on our website, which again is lowtechinstitute.org. That's all we have this week. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Is It Minus Five off the album Laughing Turkeys by Captive Portal. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And if you enjoy this free podcast, please help repay us by sharing it with a friend. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno. And also reach us directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.